0: Welcome to the Carlow Decade of Centenaries podcast series, brought to you by Carlow County Libraries and Carlow County Museum. Hello and you're very welcome to the Decade of Centenaries podcast, brought to you by Carlow County Libraries and Carlow County Museum, as part of Carlow County Council's Decade of Centenaries programme. During this series of podcasts, we will look into the events, personalities and historiography of the momentous events of a century ago, both in Carlow and nationwide, and hopefully present to our listeners stories and insights that will give us all a better understanding of those turbulent times. I'm joined today by Adam Kane. Adam is a graduate of Carlow College. He holds a BA Honours in English and History. And he is shortly due to undertake an MPhil in modern Irish history in Trinity College. Adam has an article coming in this November's uh, edition of Carloviana. It's entitled A Peaceable and Orderly County and looks at policing in Carlow and Kilkenny during the period of 1918 to 1921. Adam, you're very welcome to our podcast. Thanks very much for uh, for agreeing to come in. Oh, thank you for having me. And we really were taken by the topic that you were speaking about because in recent months, and indeed in the last year as well, the issue of policing has really come to the fore. It's really been discussed and mm. it's been especially topical. And we'd be delighted to hear your opinions and the results of your studies into that. Thank you. Um, as I said, you have an article coming out in *Carloviana*. Mm-hmm. It will form the basis of a lot of what we're going to talk about. And included in that article is a quote from Morris O'Neill, the historian and journalist. That's right. And I'm going to throw it to you, Adam, and you can tell me what you make of it. Fire away. He says, The greater pity is now, nearing a century on, our official history still gives a simplistic account of the period and, as a result, a vast cross-section of our society is written off in quiet ignominy. Would you agree with that statement, Adam?
1: It's a bit of a loaded question, and I think it is be- it's, ties in a little bit, I think, to what you were talking about, how the subject of policing has been particularly controversial. When we look at the history of the Irish War of Independence specifically those years between 1918 and 1921 I think we tend to have written history in a very binary way and a lot of the nuance between the two poles has been somewhat lost While you did have the RIC who were the Royal Irish Constabulary They were the law enforcement arm of Ireland since about 1822 with the Constabulary Act when that was passed but the thing is, they weren't solely in charge of policing during the War of Independence. In fact, they almost became garrison troops during that period. Right. Obviously, you've got the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries and, as well, the Army were involved. And the RIC, their role gets a little bit muddied when we're talking about the War of Independence. So I think when we talk about the RIC, it's worth looking at their role, what it was before the war, because they were the one institution, if you like, of Irish law enforcement that predates the war. And They were part and parcel of their community. Pillars of society on one hand, but also agents of, well, the British establishment of the Crown. Uh, I suppose one way to talk about it, whether they've been written off in quiet ignominy, as Maurice O'Neill says, I think he's correct. But mostly because we haven't dedicated enough scholarship to it, in my opinion. What's important to understand is that the force, as it were, was generally drawn from Irishmen. Right. Maybe not necessarily those who were implicitly loyal to the crown, although certainly um, that you had several there for whom that was the case. But they were also it was it was a very respectable position. Okay. The local constable, the local sergeant, was very familiar with everybody's comings and goings. It had local
0: status as it well. It had a
1: lot of local status, yeah. and when you consider that, probably maybe not so, and, and maybe not initially, but given the stratified nature of Irish society along sectarian lines in the mid part of the 19th century yes, this was one position where anybody could prosper. Okay. They could become very well respected, they rendered assistance to travelers uh, in fact they had an intimate knowledge of all the local amenities and services and in some ways as a result they put a friendly face on British occupation and I am kind of inclined to believe that if the, your local representative is the RIC sergeant, you know him, he knows your family you might have a couple of drinks with them in the pub every okay. so often. It's going to make it... A, it makes people less inclined, I think, to openly defy the law. Adam, since the formation of the RIC
0: in the mid-19th century,
1: mm.
0: especially with regard to Carlo, would you say or how would you characterize mm. the relationship between the, the the population of the county and the RIC itself? From what you were saying earlier, was it cordial it seemed to have been from what you say they were respected relations could have been described as good or even very good couldn't mm.
1: they i uh, i think if we to return to the actual title of the essay it was something that it was a quote that was given by i believe it was one of the local magistrates who was presiding over the Carlos petty, uh, petty sessions at the courthouse uh, he he was described the county as peaceable and orderly this i think was about 1920 Okay. So right. things, or it was 1919 to 1920. Things At a had, time
0: when things were certainly not peaceful and orderly in other
1: counties. In other counties. Carlo, this is one of the interesting dynamics about Carlo during the War of Independence. It was relatively peaceful insofar as there were very few dramatic sieges, dramatic uh, sieges on RIC barrackses. You would have had very few ambushes and raids against the, the crown forces. Yeah, they did happen. That is important to note, uh, but they were often abortive. And a lot of the witness statements from this period, taking from men of the Carlo Brigade, men such as Padraig Kane, for example. Yes, uh, he was very involved in the intelligence community there. But I suppose we'll get onto that later. Yes, but he records a lot of abortive actions against the establishment. True, there was dissent but it tended not to be coordinated, and the result was that Carlo didn't have the level of crime relative to other counties, okay. even just down the road somewhere like Kilkenny.
0: Right. Now, um, Adam, if I can just go back to something you mentioned earlier with regard to the history of the RIC and the work that has been done documenting it. Mm. You mentioned that further scholarly endeavour is needed mm. um, and needs to be dedicated to, to the RIC. What do you think needs to be done? Where are we lacking? What have we missed in the previous hundred years of treatment of the history of the RIC? What do we need to work on, or do you have any ideas on, on where we need to go with that?
1: I would argue we'd, um, scholarship would be greatly abetted by looking at the RIC as an institution, and how they operated on a local level, and how local populations related to them. Okay. Because as I talked about a little at the beginning, and this is understandable. Irish historiography has focused very much on the black and tans and the auxiliaries and on crown forces themselves. Because you have to remember, these, those three organizations, they tended not to be part of the daily life within a given community. Yes. They were extra-military, well, in their, barracks. Extra military, in their, in their yeah. barracks, or they were only brought in in times of, well, in this particular time of crisis. Mm one could argue that the heavy-handed response that these institutions put upon the people helped galvanize anti-government sentiment. And I think that has sort of clouded our understanding of the RIC in the last century or so. So in
0: a very short period, the very strong relations that the RIC had forged in the communities from the mid-19th century up to the outbreak of hostilities during Mm. the War of Independence and uh, even the, the rise of nationalism from the early 1900s A lot of that was washed away
1: very quickly. I think it was a lot of it was lost in translation because I give I have one instance that I was kind of reading up on recently regards to if we wanted to look at how the RIC maybe almost had sympathy with the public or in some ways the police and the public were one entity in the same as far as identity was concerned. Okay. There was a constable by the name of Timothy Brennan who was stationed in Tullamore in 1918 when the conscription crisis was beginning to reach its peak. Now, I mean, the conscription crisis, I suppose a bit of background is due, but essentially, when Britain entered World War I in 1914, Ireland was the one realm within the United Kingdom that was exempt from mandatory service. This, however, was proposed to change as the Russians left the war, requiring more manpower to be used on the Western Front. So it was proposed that conscription be introduced in Ireland in order to ameliorate the situation. Unsurprisingly, it was deeply unpopular. The clergy denounced it, the average Irish citizen denounced it. Mm. But that raises the question, where did the police come in on this? Well, Timothy Brennan was a constable stationed in Tullamore, and he was enjoined by several locals to make the forces, uh, or at least the average constable's position, known on the conscription question. Uh, he seems to have had a contact within the Carlo Nationalist paper. He issued a circular uh, that he put around through several uh, barracks in the region and gathered their opinions on the question, and then had this circular published within the Nationalist. Now, he claims that it was met with great success because it ended up... It seems that the majority of constables that are, uh, uh, consumed the circular very much agreed with the sentiment and didn't believe that conscription ought to have been introduced. Okay. Now this may come from the fact that the RIC were generally drawn from the Irish citizens themselves. Yeah. So they might have had private sympathies with the Home Rule cause, as it were, for uh, at the time. So, there does seem to have definitely been an historical accord, even on. Fairly wedge issues such as uh, conscription. Okay. That's one interesting point of uh, commonality I did notice between police and public. Right. Even if it's a question of political sympathy rather than out-and-out uh, out violence, as we got down the road.
0: So any opposition that would have would have uh, arisen in the population at the time of the conscription crisis wouldn't really have eroded much the faith in the populace in in the police force. It was more the way in which people or the
1: regards that people held the military in it seemed that seems possible at least as i said there was considerable sympathy i think within the ric for the, um, for, for, mild the for mild nationalism okay. for the public mood no
0: so if we go beyond the conscription crisis then and we get to the start of the hostilities uh, in the independence struggle and we get to easter week in 1916 hmm. Would the outbreak of of outright hostilities in the country have had much of an impact on relations between the police and the populace in Carlo? Is there any evidence or have you seen anything at that time where you could say, well, here is the start of a sea change in the public perception of both um, their attitude to the police and the attitude to British uh, authority in Ireland?
1: I think... I think so to a point, and I find it interesting too that uh, because if we look at, say, somewhere close by, Tipperary, the famous solo head-beg ambush is generally seen to be the beginning of armed hostilities against the British Crown in Ireland. As the solo headboat beg ambush in which two constables were killed what was intre- What's interesting to note about that is, you talk about, was it Dan Breen, who orchestrated the attack? Yeah. He expected to gain a lot more support from the local population than he actually did. He was sheltered by friends and by family, but for the most part, at, at those very early stages, um, Breen and his men were seen in some circles to be little more than murderers.
0: They didn't get they the d- massive outswell of support that they were maybe expecting.
1: That they, they were expecting, exactly, mm. because, and I think again, the constables were seen to be just men doing their jobs. Ireland, at that very early stage, hadn't completely thrown itself behind uh, militarized independence. There was still some sympathy for the Home Rule cause, if you like, uh, parliamentary nationalism. And In even from com- the
0: IRA's perspective, it it wasn't. I don't believe it was a sanctioned. Uh, it was a sanctioned uh, maneuver. Um Correct. So even the IRA, you could state at that time, wasn't particularly prepared for things to start the way they did when they did.
1: That's. I think it. it was. It was a reluctant move towards us. But go and to the only reason I mention that is just to tie into your question. Initially, people were perhaps guarded about getting behind militant nationalism, but it seems that particularly in, if we're to relate it to Carlo, people's attitudes were very much guided by the authorities' response, and one good watershed moment for that in Carlo would be Tullow. As far to my knowledge, outside of Tullow, several constables were killed. Two, I believe. I think one was killed, one was wounded. Okay. Off the top of my head, I can't quite recall. But the government's response was horrendous. They set fire to yeah, several Tullo. buildings in Tullow, yeah. and... that w- I think incidents like that definitely would have galvanized public support for militant nationalism. Uh, Bishop Foley even mentioned, uh, Patrick Foley, uh, the Bishop of Kildare and Loughlin at that point, he talked a little bit about this in a private correspondence, and he mentioned that uh, it seemed to him that the government's policy was to drive the district into open war in line with the rest of the country. So I think at that point, public support, um, public support for national, uh, for militant nationalism was very much guided by the government's response. People were reluctant to get behind us until the response was heavy-handed.
0: Okay. So you could hold up Tolo. Mm. If we're looking for specific points on, on, a, on a chronology, we can point at the Tolo uprisals and say there is a definite example of uh, a time when the public attitude changed, and suddenly, very quickly, everything that was going on with the RIC in Carlo changed to agree after that too.
1: There was certainly more suspicion. I mean, when you talk about... If you're looking at um, the War of Independence and the relationship between police and people, if you're to look at it in broad strokes, there tends to be three degrees that you could look at. Uh, Boycotts, ambushes, and barrack burnings. And they're usually the metrics, I think, by which, at least in this paper, that I judge the relations between police and people. Now all of those things do feature in Carlo and the relationship between police and people but they're rarely as dramatic as they might have been elsewhere. So, for example, the guardedness after Tullow, you will hear about people talking about how they hadn't spoken to the police, or they would refuse to speak to the police. Yes. So that sort of distance begins to become more apparent as the war progresses. And Adam,
0: can you give us an idea of, at the outbreak of the war, what was the situation with regard to the barracks in Carlo? How many were we looking at? Would many have been uh, fortified? Um, where were the RIC stationed around the county at the time?
1: Uh, well, I believe that we have some some of the sources that we have for this period. Um, every year the RIC would publish a circular, and this would happen to, or I think it was a circular, it would have a, you basically have a list of all the different amenities where every station was. Okay. One of the ones I could find I think was in 1917, I think that was the earliest one I found. Okay. I believe there was about there could have been seven or eight total. You would have had the four major ones in the urban centres, which were Carlo, Tullo, Hackettstown, and Bagnellstown. But then you would have had other local stations in smaller areas, such as Lachlan Bridge, uh, where I'm living actually, Fenna, Michel, Those kind of areas also would have had them. Small rural. They were small and they were rural. The and the, du- the constable on duty, his primary job, was checking dog licences, ensuring that licensed premises closed on time, okay. even though this is so, Ireland. Certainly no, <laughs> Some things haven't changed, that's no. all I'm saying.
0: So they certainly weren't from their smaller rural outposts. They were not launching counterinsurgency. Uh, measures in the countryside?
1: Certainly not and I think this is kind of where the history of law enforcement in Ireland does begin to take a turn as well because as I said there were four urban barracks and they were the ones that were gradually fortified and defended. In about March to April of I believe it was 1920 an evacuation order was issued from Dublin Castle requiring that all urban barracks be abandoned and that their garrisons be used to reinforce the urban centres.
0: Right. Now, So everyone withdrawn from, from the rural outposts back in to, the one to that supplement the, the, the urban centres where whatever action was going, that's where it was going on.
1: Is it, that's, that, that would be it. Okay. And what's interesting with that is, Carlo, again, if we're talking about how Carlo's a little bit of an, an anomaly when it comes to, well, violence, is that a lot of these rural barracks, if you look in other counties, Rural barrackses would have been ambushed, the constables engaged in sieges almost as what happened in Carrotoo Hill in Cork. It was a protracted gunfight that went on for hours mm. and only actually finished when the RIC and the barracks had run out of ammunition. Okay. But Carlo was very different insofar as I can't seem to find any evidence to suggest that any of these rural centres were actually... there was any firefights between local insurgents yes. and local constables. They were only burned, it seems, after the RIC had evacuated them. Right. Now, I mean, you could infer several reasons. Perhaps there was a latent respect there for the constables. Maybe could also be that the IRA just didn't have the facilities to do so in Carlo because, there, for a couple of reasons, the IRA never quite gotten its feet in here okay. um, here the way it would have done elsewhere.
0: I wonder as well, would they have looked on these uh, buildings as somehow symbolic of the... The um, authority of, of, of Britain in their locality, and for no other reason than to to um, I suppose culturally strike a blow, absolutely to torch them or attack them or, or generally make them unfit for purpose.
1: Well, that, that honestly that would have been my, that would have been my take on it. Even if there, you couldn't have a an, a physical concerted assault on these areas, the mere act of burning them do, is a it's a deeply symbolic gesture, nothing else even if the actual human loss was minimal to non-existent.
0: And Adam, while we were talking
1: (coughs) about attacks on barracks, you made a comparison
0: in your article uh, with an attack on Huggettstown barracks in Kilkenny in Mm. March 1920. And if I can um, just again take another quote from the article there from Lord George Ronan, who was Mm. writing in the aftermath of the attack. He said the following. No one has been made amenable for this crime. There were 50 or 60 different people engaged in the attack, and it is impossible to believe that no people could give information that would be of some use. There are two explanations for this. The first, which I hope is not true, that there must be a number of people sympathising with this cruel murder, or else that the people are so terrorised that they dare not give information. Now, that is the picture as it was being painted in County Kilkenny. Hmm. What do you think the picture was in Carlow at that time? Do you think that there would have been a lot of sympathy for any murders that would have been carried out during a barrack attack? Or do you think that it was a situation whereby the IRA had the people or the populace of the, of the, the county terrorised into, into uh, silence? Do you think either of those would have applied in Carlow?
1: Uh, I do, but there's definitely a contrast to be made between the two. Um, there are definitely instances in the witness statements which record, uh, for example, Padraig Kane mentions it himself, that, that you did have some people who were sympathetic to the establishment cause. He meant, he has a couple of anecdotes in support of that, but one of them involves the barracks in, is it, Great Cullen?
0: Okay, Okay,
1: yep. that's Leash. it's not Carlo, but yep. for our current purposes over the bridge, yes, they're honorary Karlovians, for the sake of the study. But um, that barrack supposedly was defaced uh, by a couple of local IRA sympathisers. Those sympathisers were actually, according to Kane, were actually informed upon, and the police were made aware of it. The people who did happen to pass on the information, they were warned by the IRA that they should leave the town or suffer the consequences. Okay. Now, whether is that to suggest that they were terrorised into silence? I don't think so given that, as we established earlier, there was already considered, there was a certain amount of anti-government feeling in Carlo at this time. I don't, I don't think they were terrorized into silence so much as they were sympathetic. But you would, of course, have had loyalist elements in any county, and Carlo given its relationship to, we're going back centuries here, to the mm. fact that it was settled initially by yes. the Normans, there may have been some residual loyalty to the Crown from there, but I think it's, an, it's difficult to say one or the other. It is one thing I do mention in my dissertation itself, in the paper, the one thing I really believe this period would benefit from is a demographic study. To try and establish where, uh, you know, with whom loyalties lay uh, in order to establish latent sympathies. Right. Because there was certainly amount, I think, of anti-government sentiment in Ireland, but there was probably some common cause with the rebels in that regard too.
0: And perhaps a lot of uh, the silent majority, perhaps, who uh, is very hard to, to get some idea of them now at this remove over 100 years mm. ago. Um, we held up earlier on, we held up Tolo as an example of um, an incident which really did turn the tide of popular opinion against the RIC and British authority in general. Mm. Now, there was another incident, a very famous one in Cork, which you're all aware of, which was the murder of Tomas McCartan. Yes. Um, now, that has, has, that has been shown to, to have um, RIC um, membership heavily involved mm. in it. Would that be held up as well as, first of all, another example of um, a, a, an incident from british crown forces that would again have chipped away at that respect and that um that 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 regard that people held the police in and secondly could it be also held up as an incident that shows pretty overt aggression on the part of the ric because obviously we've heard about their barracks being attacked we've heard about ambushes on patrols we've heard of um many instances of violence and aggression towards the RIC this was an example of the RIC going on the going on the attack themselves Hmm. would that again I suppose it obviously would have affected relations but would there be any is there any account of how that was received in Carlo or does anyone know of publicly what the the knock-on effect for the RIC was
1: I think at that point, I, now I can't find, now I didn't encounter any corroborating accounts from Carlo or opinions on, on that particular incident, yes. but I'm nearly certain they exist. Right. I mean, it was a very big deal, but it certainly would have been unpopular here in Ireland and would have ga- galvanized further disaffection for the government, but I seem to remember in the Hansard Papers, which is an account of the House of Commons debates, that um, yeah, even, in, even as high as in Parliament in England, yes. this was considered murder. So I actually think both, i th- there were people at home and abroad that were horrified by that level of response. And I do think it probably helped to solidify public opinion against the RIC. When we look at militancy in general and people hitting back, it was mostly confined to, again as we say, the black and tans and the auxiliaries. Yes. The RIC were always part of these patrols, or always supporting the army. But that was because they were intimate with the, lo- with the locale. Mm. But something like that, I, it does, it strikes me as senseless undemocratic violence.
0: It was, would you say it was out of character
1: for the RIC? For the RIC, yes I would. Yeah, we, they generally weren't in the business of terrorising the locales that they were supposed to be serving. Which again makes sense because of how deeply embedded they were within these communities. Right. So I would have thought it that have attack been was... It would less to
0: the outsiders of the army and the, the auxiliaries and and whoever else was not a community force.
1: That would be that'd be my reading of it, yes.
0: Um, Adam, you make reference as well in the article to the post office connection. Hmm. Um, can you tell us a bit about that, what it was and how it worked and what effect it had on the operations of the IRA and Carlow um, at that time?
1: Okay, well, I think maybe that... The best way to sort of start on it might be with an anecdote that comes from, again, one of the witness statements, Uh, Padraig Kane, again, as I said earlier, he was heavily involved with the intelligence side of things. Imagine you've just finished school, you have your qualifications to a degree, you mightn't have been an exceptional student, but you were competent, you knew your numbers, your letters, so you get a job as a post office clerk. Where your job might be, to example, intercept. you might be, be handling mail fairly regularly, you'd be dealing with telegraphs telegrams uh so you would actually be some you'd be almost you'd be a you'd be a purveyor of information that's coming from all sides now also imagine that you happen to be a young boy that's in Carlo and the GAA is about it's a you know popular outlet everyone's yep. a part of it yeah so you join your local club at this point by about we'll say about 1918 we'll say The GAA clubs, contrary to their founder's wish admittedly, had largely been infiltrated by Republican elements, so that be that of the IRB and then later the IRA. Someone in your club hears that you're a post office clerk. Maybe eventually the two of you get in touch and now suddenly here you are transcribing messages and passing them on to the local IRA. Padraic Kane, for example, mentions the first time this happened on his watch was uh, he received word uh, about a government, it was a police communication about a Garoid O'Sullivan uh, who had been working in Notbeg College. Now he recognised, he recognised the name as it came through mm. and requested, uh, he typed RQ on the telegraph, which essentially was a signal for the message to be repeated. Okay. This would take a few seconds, so he had time to transcribe the message and give Mr. O'Sullivan the warning so that he could get out of Dodge, so to speak. Okay, right. And that's generally how these things operated. As things became a little bit more sophisticated, post office clerks who were embedded within these areas, they became proficient at, you know, decoding regular ciphers, police ciphers. They would have had advance notice of troop movements. Where government people were going to be stay or where uh, constables were going to be stationed. Okay. It essentially it allowed them to know the police or the government's moves before the government forces knew it themselves.
0: And, and looking back now, a hundred years removed from it, it seems like a very, uh, a very lax means of communication for the authorities to to pass things through a post office system that could, like as you pointed out, there have. Uh, their enemy sympathizers mm. embedded in, um, was this practice of, of uh, messaging from the post offices and I assume telegrams, was that rumbled, so to speak, at the time, or is it only now looking back that after the, the events that it became obvious that this was what was going on?
1: At the time, they did get it. They they were rumbled eventually. Now, Kane did notice that things initially went rather well. The only problem was the Karlo IRA lacked the means to capitalise upon the information they had. But they were rumbled eventually, when a certain postal clerk was found with encrypted ciphers that he wasn't supposed to have. Which meant the houses of all disloyal postal clerks, quote-unquote, happened to be raided, and they never quite enjoyed the same advantage after that.
0: So it was really carelessness more than anything else that that brought the whole thing down?
1: Could have been luck as much as anything else. You know, they say man plans and God laughs. Right. Uh, O'Kane himself notes that he was nearly caught more than once with ciphers that he wasn't supposed to have in the lining of his hat. So he did get stopped. Luckily they didn't search the band of his hat or he would have been rumbled too. Right. So these, you know, it could just be a case of man plans and God laughs because prior to that it had been quite effective.
0: Um, We have mentioned earlier on how there was a withdrawal of the RIC um, Presence from around the the rural parts of the county back in towards the towns This left a complete absence from the countryside and then it did have a knock-on effect on The establishment of Irish Republican courts. Hmm. Can I again read just a little uh, a little extract that you have in your work? With the RIC effectively absent from the countryside, the Irish Republican courts, which had been gaining traction for over a year, were able to exploit the resultant power vacuum and informally establish themselves as the region's law enforcers. Do we know what shape the Irish Republican law enforcement at that time took to replace the RIC's version?
1: Okay, uh, we can say in broad strokes, these were things that were aspirational initially. Uh, the Dahl Courts, or the Republican Courts as they were referred to, um, they have their origins to say some of the disputes that certain uh, Sinn Féin abstainers might have had uh, from about 1918 onward, whereby if somebody was charged, a member of Sinn Féin or a Republican organization with Sinn Féin sympathies, as it transpires, I'm being free and easy with the terminology there, yes yes but they would have claimed that if they were being charged for political crimes or dissidents, some of them occasionally replied uh, I don't acknowledge the authority yes. of this court yeah. and so it went so the early republican or the dol courts can trace their can trace their origins to that level of dis, uh, dissidence but when they really came into their own was, as you said, when the RIC retired from the countryside. Okay. So after the we after the withdraw after the withdraw the RIC's withdrawal from the countryside in March and April of 1920, there was a power vacuum. Uh, there was no in there was no real semblance or there was no picture of law and order at that point, because there, the enforcers were obviously gone. So uh, the IRA and I suppose I'm the IRA and other Republicans and their agents. Thank you would have instituted these courts to impose a sort of makeshift law and order now? It had a very practical effect It was quite popular amongst the people because it was an effective way of dispensing justice in some they
0: had voted for this And they had voted for this. That's it in the majority of terms. This was in the manifesto for 1918 uh, in the election and this is what was overwhelmingly supported by the population.
1: That's right, and I believe that Republican uh, groups such as Sinn Féin did win the majority in a lot of local councils during this period as well. So that there was a feeling that there was a mandate from the public to actually be governed by these courts. Uh, there were some very interesting accounts from us the The sort of justice was that they administered was was swift, but it was often thought to be fair. Okay. One man in Kildare, for example, having transgressed against his neighbor, was exiled for the count from the county for a few weeks. Okay, He returned. Another case, which I actually thought was very amusing, uh, there was a man in Longford who claimed some damage to his hat. His neighbor <laughs> had attacked it with an ash plant. Okay. So the court ordered. Fine. Replace the hat with one of his choosing. So it was almost... That sounds fair. This is trivializing it, but I mean, it it was a strong moral statement from the Sinn Féin perspective because it proved that not only they had the moral authority to govern, but they were capable of it and the people supported them. Right. Plus, the apparatus of British law enforcement was effectively muted at that point. Uh, uh, Magistrates couldn't enter the old courtrooms. Uh, to preside over. They were often barricaded and denied entry. Yes. So the only form of legal recourse was the Republican courts, itse- courts themselves. It was
0: the only functioning legal system at that time once the withdrawal mm. happened in, in early 1920. Um, we spoke earlier on, Adam, about the relative lack of barracks attacks in Carlo, mm. especially when you compare it with the Southwest, with Tipperary, with Kilkenny um, and you come to a conclusion in your work as to why this was and one of them was the landscape yes. of the county. Can you explain why the gentle rolling hills of Carlow and Flat Plains were not conducive to these attacks?
1: Uh, so in terms of trying to work out where the or why uh, the IRA were affected by the terrain it's rather instructive to learn where the IRA themselves trained, and it often tended to be you know around uh, the the lower mountains. Duckets Grove is one place that's very well known, but the foothills of Colestion are another. and the reason it's the reason for that, if you ask me, is because it's very hard to roust out a, a group of men that are hiding in a mountain or in a hill, whereas Carlo, because it's largely you know well drained crisscross with roads. Yes, It's hard to cite an ambush in such a way that the authorities wouldn't be able to literally see it coming Shit. a mile away.
0: Okay, okay. There's very little cover around the place.
1: Very little cover. Now, there are instances where, for example, I believe in Bagnallstown, the RIC barracks was, quote-unquote, sniped at repeatedly to keep the constable's heads down, while another bunch of men tried to conduct an ambush up the road by the railway bridge, but again, I think there was some flaw in the communications, or for whatever reason, uh, the convoy didn't arrive on time, was forewarned by its intentions. But in the few instances where they were able to use the terrain to their advantage, the ambush has just never really materialized.
0: Okay. So the, the terrain in Carlo that is conducive to launching the kind of attacks that we have seen elsewhere throughout the country mm. was. Uh, confined to a very small part of the country or the the county and otherwise they were just out in the plain open for everyone to see plenty of of, uh, Crown Forces eyes on them
1: That's pretty much... I suppose with anything there are exceptions but that is in one broad stroke one of the reasons I think why IRA... Yeah, IRA activity was impeded
0: Um, Adam, if we look into the actual study Um, of the RIC, the history of the force, and the history of individual officers in it. Um, Can you give us some idea of the records that are available for the study of the RIC, what they are, where they are, and I suppose unfortunately when we're dealing with a lot of early 20th century Irish records, what's missing?
1: Now this, the RIC ones actually are some, it's the RIC records are a bit of a blessing and a curse for somebody who was trying to study them in Carlo. Like most things these days, uh, bits and pieces have been digitized or are available online. You can have some RIC constables that would have applied uh, to the Bureau of Military History and left records, such as Timothy Brennan, the constable I mentioned earlier on that had ties to The Nationalist and published The yes. Circular. So things like that can be very instructive. Uh, but the service records in general, they luckily enough that they were stored in Dublin Castle, um, which, as we know, was not burned subsequently. Yes. Uh, so when the British authorities left in 1921, the records went with them. So a lot of them now are stored in Kew in England. Okay. So in some ways this saved them from destruction that might otherwise have happened had they been left here in Ireland. But at the same time they're also difficult to access without a flight over there yes In terms of the records particularly what, difficult these days these days oh God they was I wasn't even thinking of that I was thinking of 2019 right. particularly these yeah. days yeah. but yeah what they tended to be was uh, were service records detailing individual constable names uh, their years of service uh, what they had done during their time injury reports were quite helpful too okay. it would have it talks about these injury reports they, if a constable was injured in the line of duty, it tended to be describing the incident and the nature of the injury. Some of those I was able to find on actually some of these strange sites like ancestry.com or right. my Irish ancestors. Some of these things did get digitized and Where processed.
0: You can sometimes uncover absolute gems that people have stumbled across. Exactly very, very useful for family for genealogy, family history for all sorts of, of research. Um, So that's, I suppose, an assessment of the RIC records. Mm. Then looking at it from the other side, we have, of course, the Bureau of Military History witness statements. How did you find those as a resource? And were there any particular aspects that struck you as you went through them?
1: I think with the witness statements, what always came to my mind, and I suppose this is the same as of using any primary source for any particular conflict or period of history, it reminds me what the Duke of Wellington is meant to have said about the Battle of Waterloo. He said that writing the history of it was rather like writing the history of a ball. Everybody remembers different elements of it, and they remember everything differently. Right. The witness statements themselves are quite like that it's entirely possible to look at, say, differing or the same... You can look at different accounts from different people who would have served in the same region. Yes. But there's always a subtle variance in how they remember the event as it took place. Now, oftentimes, if you cross-reference enough things, you'll find enough consistencies to make a coherent narrative. But... That is one of the challenges I found with the witness yeah. statements. The, you will need to do a lot of cross-reading in order to make everything make sense. Yes, But in general, as primary sources, I think they're inv- invaluable. A lot of them are deposited from a range of different people, such as, as I said, Timothy Brennan, who was an RIC constable, You've got the likes of Nan Nolan, who was a member of yeah, Come, come the and the Ban. Man, yeah. You've got Padraig O'Kane, who, would have, who was, uh, I think, a senior member of the Carlo Brigade and heavily involved with intelligence. So you can get a rich array of, of perspectives from this relatively brief period of history.
0: And would you have come across, in your comparison of um, the accounts of the same event or the same series of events, Would you have come across exaggeration in any of these? Would you have read particular accounts and thought, well, this now is a great variance to what two or three other volunteers have stated?
1: This is it. I mean, I couldn't really... There's some things... I wouldn't say exaggeration, although that's definitely there. Yes. But there are certain stories that I've found that you will find one person swears gospel that they happened, and it's never mentioned anywhere else.
0: And to be fair to everyone taking place, mm, it was at, in some cases, 20 years after, or 20 odd years, Absolutely. Or, or almost, uh, from the events. So it is understandable why there are some variances with, with people's uh, recollections.
1: Well, oh, this is it. I mean, I do remember even reading one witness statement from a particular volunteer uh, who claimed he had a caveat at the front of his file which stated that his memory, he had been injured in a motor traffic accident since uh, the events that he was describing. Which he fears may have impeded his memory. So there were you. These are things that right. you would need to take into consideration Life when what happened you're... in between. Exactly,
0: um, Adam. Having completed this study, uh, the comparison of the experiences of different RIC forces in Cork, Kilkenny, and Carlow. In undertaking that, what do you feel is the next natural progression of um, of? study from this particular work. What did you find in putting this together uh, begged further questions?
1: I think on the whole the thing that struck me the most was the question of demographics. Looking very closely into local records and finding and just exploring how different types of people felt about the issue itself. Because I think one of the, the as I mentioned at the beginning, one of the biggest problems you've got when you're talking about something like this is that we have tended to look at it from an all-or-nothing perspective. Yes. We need to consider the people that are maybe lost in between, who may not have had we call it strong opinions in the moment, but weren't who had opinions... Weren't polarised, but they were simply trying to live their lives in the middle of extraordinary times. Not unlike all of us at the moment, I might add. Right. But I, that's, I know that's putting it in, in very vague terms. I mean, there are certain areas that would interest me in uh, regards to what happened to a lot of these constables after the RIC had been disbanded. I know that some, for example, a man, I think his name was John Reagan, off the top of my head, but he was a man who served in the RIC to some effect, and he then went on to serve, serve in the RUC subsequently. I'd love to know what maybe other constables did after the war. Would they have been stigmatised because they were agents of the yes. of enemy
0: occupation? Because they were possibly seen as collaborators or...
1: Exactly. yes. You do have some people, such as I think it was a Constable O'Neill, who retired in 1921, but he was well-remembered by his colleagues and by the people he served. It was recorded in The Nationalist. So, was there a stigma against officers and constables who would have served? Maybe these people went on to serve in other places like Ulster. Mm-hmm. Or do they go further abroad to abet other colonial police forces? I think or, something or like the, that could be very joined interesting. the,
0: the new Garda Siakana from the Free State? And
1: sorry, that's the obvious one, mm-hmm. of course. That's yeah. another thing there as well.
0: Um, Adam, you undertook a lot of your research and you are still doing it at the moment in pretty extreme circumstances. We are recording this uh, at a time when a pandemic has swept the world. What effect has it had on the study of history from your experience?
1: Now it's a a tricky one. I'm kind of going. I'll have to bring my life outside of academia into that. Curiously enough, I didn't actually. I completed this dissertation in 2019, right before the world ended. Essentially, okay. So, but in the year after that, I worked with the Students Union and Carlo College St. Patrick's. So. In my capacity there as student union president, I would have been fielding a lot of different queries and complaints from students regards to how learning was conducted or how best to conduct it. Yes. The study of history, I think, in some ways, it became a struggle for students because they couldn't quite access the resource, the physical resources that you would have needed. But the joy of things moving online is that I think it makes it a lot more more accessible, not just to students but to you know Joe Soap to people yes. in general. Yeah. Things like the witness statements are accessible by anybody who has access to a computer or the, the internet and it provides a wealth of insight into a very interesting period of Irish history. Uh, certain things, such as I mentioned some of the RIC records that have been digitized, uh, they can be grabbed easily. Mm-hmm. Things such as I think the Irish news archives, yes. uh, which are accessible here in the Herodice, county library if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Things like that, with uh, admittedly they're uh, subscription-based, but something like that gives you a wealth of access to things that previously would have required you to come in and manhandle the documents themselves. So while the pandemic has been challenging, I think for for researchers and from what I witnessed about a year ago, students, I think maybe the move to online can democratize the study of history in okay. some way by making it more accessible, making its resources more accessible. Um. In your study and in
0: putting together the work that you have, what would you have seen as your most valuable um, resources?
1: The most valuable resources, um, well, at the time, I don't think a lecturer or a supervisor is a resource, okay. but I have to admit the lectures that offered support in Carlo College were marvellous that way. Um, but in terms of actual study, I would argue the. Uh, Irish newspaper archives were brilliant. Mm. Uh, a lot of the, in order to construct the sort of the basic frame of my argument, the basic frame of my paper, I drew a lot from the Nationalist and Leinster Times which it's available I think on microfilm here in the local studies department of Carlow, the Carlow County Library, mm. but it's also available on the Irish newspaper archives. So whenever I had access to that I could just troll through it find the incidents I needed to to basically frame my paper and go from there. It also had the advantage that you could cross-reference those, de- those events with um, details in the witness statements. Right. So the result was that you created, you ended up creating something that was quite layered. Okay. It was colored by three different perspectives, which I found was very helpful.
0: And any of us who have looked <clears throat> through those newspapers will, will know what a wonderful insight they give to people's attitudes, um, the the fears that people had at this very uh, what was a really scary time, hmm. and hopefully uh, we are going to see an increase in the number of titles and the number of um, the number of issues that we can hopefully look at in the future, Adam. Thank you very much for coming in along today to give us some sort of insight into how the RSE operated, um, what became of them, and the public attitudes as well at the time. We wish you all the very best in your future studies, and hopefully, when you have them completed, we'd love to have you sitting in the chair with us again to have a discussion about what you've uncovered and what you've found.
1: Thank you, John. I'd like to point out that you're clearly a glutton for punishment. <laughs> but many thanks. It was great to be here.
0: Thank you very much.
1: Thank you all for listening, and we hope you can join us for our
0: next discussion, commemorating Carlo and Ireland's Decade of Centennialism.